good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever in the world you are. Welcome to episode 6 of Stemming from Africa and I hope this podcast finds you happy and healthy. So this week's podcast is actually really long but it's also probably one of the most honest I've had and a personal favorite for many reasons. So number one, um, it features Daisy. Daisy is one of my best friends. We've been friends for the past 15 years and she's someone I really value. And this was a conversation that we had had in bits and pieces over the last couple of years. But the things that I never knew she went through. I really, really enjoyed it and I hope that you guys enjoy it. I will keep the introduction really short this week. So highlights of the week. I have just one highlight and that is my Christmas tree finally going up after all the times I've said it's going up. Um, I put it today and I love it. I love Christmas. I, I don't care what anybody says. It's not too early. No. <laughs> so yeah, the tree is up and I have a crawling baby who who just got a new toy, you know, <laughs> something to play with. So that's been really interesting. I don't really have much for thoughts this week. Uh, I'm still trying to come up with a name for this segment. So for now, we're still at highlights and thoughts. When I get a name, I will eventually put it up here. So without much ado, I will let you listen to the conversation that Daisy and I had and see you on the other side. My name is Daisy. I am a biochemist slash, well, recently, a project engineer. Every time I see it, I'm like, oh my gosh, is this true? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And yeah, Cynthia says I have, we've known each other since high school. Many, many, many years ago, we've been in each other's lives. So I've been working in France since uh, 2019. I initially came as a student and then was fortunate enough to to get a job here. So now I live and work here. What did you study for your undergrad and where did you study? So I studied uh, biochemistry at the University of Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, Initially, I actually wasn't supposed to be doing biochemistry. So through the job process, I had applied and was uh, called to Kenyatta University, I think, to do psychology. But that would mean staying home for a year, a year and a half. I don't know how long it is. So my dad came up with the idea of having me uh, apply to Nairobi University for the parallel program to do microbiology. And so I thought microbiology was too narrow of a field, like very specific for me to start with, considering that I knew I wanted to be in science, but I didn't know what and doing what exactly. So I looked at what they were offering and I saw biochemistry and I decided to apply for biochemistry because I thought with biochemistry, I could decide to end up on the more biology side, on the more chemistry side. And there's a lot of research in, in biochemistry. So that's what I did. So were you going to do biochemistry state of high school or was it something that you decided after high school? I think I decided after high school because I I think I always knew I wanted to do science. So my dad is uh, an ecologist and uh, I used to find it really fascinating how 
he'd have so many like scientific publications in the house, like in random corners of his bedroom or in the living room. Mm-hmm. And he was always writing papers because I think I first noticed it when he was doing his master's and then went on to do his PhD. So I was like, oh, that's so cool. He's always reading all these papers and stuff. Little did I know it's not that easy <laughs> and not always very cool. And so I, I always knew I wanted to do science. I just didn't know what exactly I wanted to do. So biochemistry was just a choice that I made that was available. Well, it was on a list of available courses that I've picked and I would have picked. And it was the choice that was the least specific in my mind that would allow me to be able to choose later to like veer into something else in case I didn't find what I wanted to do. It seems like your dad is a really big influence in your life. To what extent did your Mm -hmm. dad influence your, your decision? So that question has actually just made me realize something. Actually, my dad wanted both my brother and I to be doctors. I think this is very many people's experiences in Kenya where your parents want you to do medicine. So in high school, I think... I knew I'd have to do medicine. But then when I when it came time to applying, I decided that maybe it wasn't the best choice for me because I'd realized that I, as much as I would like to do medicine and make my dad proud, <laughs> I was not comfortable with seeing wounds, like open wounds on people. However, when I was doing biochemistry and you guys were doing medicine, I'd sneak into the lab to like the pathology lab when you guys were dissecting just to see, cause I found it so cool. So it's interesting that I wouldn't, I'd, I'd like be squamish about like wounds and open things on like living flesh yet cadavers were just fine. I'd just be like, oh, show me more. <laughs> yeah, so he wanted me to do medicine. I didn't think I would make it. So I decided to, to do biochemistry. Obviously, after he'd suggested microbiology, and I was just like, no. <laughs> yeah. But he did really uh, influence my choice to go into science. I think if he wasn't a scientist, I probably wouldn't have considered science. Yeah. I think when I was younger, I wanted to be a teacher. My mom is a teacher. So I think it was, I was going to pick one of the parents' career paths. And follow it. Go, go one. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's, that's super interesting because now that, that you talk about it, I remember um, we were we ran into each other all the time in Chiromo. So mm-hmm. in Kenya, if you study in UN, I think first and second year you study in medicine, you study in Chiromo, and then you move on to Kenyatta. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, and I remember you sneaking into the lab. Which is really yeah. weird. I actually didn't know that you were squeamish about wood. But it was it was yeah. very fascinating to see what you guys were doing, but just the pathology aspect of it <laughs> from afar. Interestingly, on yeah. the opposite end, because one of our units in first year med school is actually biochemistry, and I could not wait to be done. I couldn't believe you were doing an entire biochemistry everyone said biochemistry was hard and the thing I used to say to many people who would say that was that biochemistry in itself as a three year four year course is fine because you get it in chunks but biochemistry biochemistry as a unit is definitely too complex 
for that short amount of time. I think, of course, I never saw your your curriculum, your, like your program, but I think in a unit, it would definitely be quite a hard subject. Yeah, I used to really dread those classes, honestly. They were, mm-hmm. it was just rough. And then, you know, and it's true because we were doing, we, we did it in one year. So mm-hmm. you said to cram all these things in one year and mm-hmm. on top of all the other things you're doing. But I'd see you mm-hmm. and you'd be enjoying your studies. And I'm like, what is what is happening here? What is happening? <laughs> Living my best so life. Finished, <laughs> yeah. So you finished your undergrad, yeah? Mm-hmm. What do biochemists do when you finish? So first of all, finishing undergrad was a task because I I finished after like everyone finishes and then you get your results. Lo and behold, I had supplementary exams. And so the thing was in UN, we'd finish in November or somewhere towards the end of the year. Let me see September. And then then grade your papers and everything so that you can graduate with the December group. So we finish, they grade the papers, and I find that I have supplementaries, but graduation is like a month away. So it's obvious I'm not graduating <laughs> in 2013 with the rest of my class. I was destroyed. <laughs> and this was a unit that I did not see the, the, the fail coming. I was so shocked. And so I was like, okay, so... I'm not graduating this year. <laughs> Am I ever going to graduate? What is going to happen to in my to my life? Because I wanted to graduate uh, with high enough honors to proceed to do a master's, but so obviously now I can't. And then I think if you had sub- to redo uh, a class, well, a- an exam, I had to redo the exam, but not the class. Once you fail the supplementary exam, then you redo the the unit. So I had to redo the exam, that means I wouldn't get like a good grade. I wouldn't get an A or a B. I'd just get a pass because I failed it the first time. So that meant I can't do masters. So yeah, so 2014 had me emotionally all over the place. Christmas was spent in in my room studying, trying to trying to get as much information to do the exam. Uh, in January. So January comes, I do the exam and I passed, but obviously I passed with just a pass. So I can't do masters. So what am I, what am I going to do? So I decide and graduation was going to be in December, 2014. I've done the exam January, 2014. I have to wait all these months to graduate in December. So I can't do anything. So that's one year of my life. Just looking at me and be, being like, what are you going to do? So I decided to uh, take up French because I'd done French in high school and I really like, I like the French language. I enjoyed it. And I'd always said, I need to go to France in, in my life. I just need to go and see and speak French with the French. And then I can come back and live, <laughs> and live my life. So I wanted, I, I decided to do French and my dad, who I think he was disappointed in, in me not passing the first time. So my dad didn't didn't uh, pay for my French classes in Alliance. So my mom was sneaky enough to be like, you just go, I'll pay for you. So she paid for me and I was able to do uh, level four and level five of French within that year as I waited to graduate in December. And then I got this idea from my uncle. He was like, well, if you get your 
uh, your biochemistry degree and you have level a minimum of level four, why don't you apply to masters in France? My my, my uncle is is a is a translator, French Spanish, but at the time it was just French, and he he's the one who actually made us made us my brother and I fall in love with French and take French in primary school and high school. So when he gave me this idea, I was like, maybe my life is not over. <laughs> maybe this one year was actually not a waste. So I I did uh, French classes in Alliance. I got level four, five. December, I graduated and I started applying for master's. So the thing in France is that anyone can be can be can apply and get into masters to do a degree of course a related degree so i decided to apply for biochemistry and i think i applied to three four class uh, universities uh, so there was pure biochemistry and then there was uh, like variations like biochemistry and biotech or biochemistry and molecular biology but generally under the hat of biochemistry so I applied and I, I was accepted. So now we're in 2015. So I've been applying from uh, December 2014 after I graduated and actually have papers <laughs> to make these applications. I apply, I apply, and I got into two universities. Oh, I also applied to universities in the UK, but those were too expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, France was an advantage because education when a foreign student applies to a French taught course, they pay the the tuition fee like any other French citizen, which is mm. uh, at the time, I think it was around 700 euros. So that's like, I don't know, 80,000 roughly Kenya shillings, which is pretty affordable mm. for one entire year with, with, um, with health insurance included. Um, yeah, so I got into this university and I was overjoyed. I was like, look at me using this one year to build my life. <laughs> and now look at me going to France. <laughs> so I was so excited, but I didn't, I didn't think about it too much. I was just like, after undergrad, you do masters. If you don't do masters, I guess you work. At that time, uh, the people who had graduated well before me, my classmates who got to graduate before I, I could, ha- had started working. And I think most of them were working as, uh, what are they called? Pharmaceutical representatives, which is mm-hmm. basically, I think it's kind of like marketing. Like that, I think they're the ones who go to see doctors uh, with like pharmaceutical products. Med reps, yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. the word, med reps, yeah. yeah. And I knew that's not what I wanted to do. Uh, I think for me, master's was just the next step after after undergrad and also like a uh, placeholder as I decide what I'm going to do. Why not just continue and see this biochemistry through? Yeah, and so that's that's that was my, my uh, door of entry <laughs> into France. Yeah, so I got I, I got to do biochemistry masters for two years in in Bordeaux wine country. <laughs> that that's I, I I always say when I invite when I introduce myself to French people when they ask where I'm from, I'm like um, I'm from Bordeaux, <laughs> like I'm from Kenya, but my 
my home, quote unquote, is from in, in France's voodoo. You mm-hmm. you've collected your life, which by the way, mm-hmm. I I knew some of this, but like you describing it. Let me just say it was devastating because uh, as a high achiever, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I was the top of my class every time, but I had never failed anything academically. Well, I mean, I, I didn't get all A's, but I had not failed to a point where I had to miss graduation, miss the next step. You know, it's like repeating a class. I think I was just, it kind of like turned my world around. I was like, what? I'm not a good student. <laughs> I fail and now I have to do this again and lag behind. It was it was a blow. I want to talk about that experience. So mm-hmm. you having someone who because I know you and you are a high achiever, mm-hmm. how did that <laughs> how was dealing with that failure? What did that teach you? And like how did that shape you for the future? Mm-hmm. I think humility <laughs> first of all when you're just like wow okay i failed humility and then also i think i just had to take a step back and and realize you had this plan but now you can't go forward with it because obviously you you have no degree so you have to figure it out it also taught me how to like go to plan b or look for plan b just think of, okay, so I can't do this. What can I do? If I decide to do this, how will it help me when I can finally continue with my plans? I think, but it was, it was hard. I think November was spent in, in tears. (laughs) I would cry a lot and then it would be, oh, it was so awkward when people would be like, so are you graduating? You're, you're done, right? I'd be like, no, I, I am not graduating. I have to redo <laughs> some tests before I can graduate. And then that will be in a year. It was uh, humbling, but also, yeah, I think it was a good moment. Also, so it was a good moment to like reflect and think about what I can do to keep my life on track. And it was a turning point in my life because say I had, I had graduated with everyone else. I'd have gone straight to master's in Kenya, right? Because the UK was too expensive. Uh, I mean, I guess I'd probably have tried to get a scholarship, but we know those are not easy. So I probably would have stayed in Kenya and done a master's at the University of Nairobi because that was the next step. So I think it was a blessing in disguise as well. A good thing came out of it. I, I ask that because I know now how your life is. And mm-hmm. I just said this um, in a previous recording, but hindsight is twenty twenty, And I know sometimes mm-hmm. the whole everything happens for a reason thing can be really tired and just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Oh, but, yes. Um, I feel like, like for you, things actually worked out really interestingly. And maybe we'll get mm-hmm. to that later. But um, mm-hmm. so you're moving to another country. So a thing I don't know if I've mentioned is that um, Daisy and I went to school together. So we were both um, day scholars, and then we're we've both stayed at home um, as mm-hmm. university students. And now you've gone mm-hmm. to another country <laughs> where people speak French. Were you were your classes yes. in, Fra- in French? Yes, they were. So the thing about being day scholars, so primary school 
day, day scholar, high school day scholar, university day scholar. I, I would go to school and come back home and sleep with my parents in the next room. And then now I'm, I'm what? Was I 22, 23? I have to leave the country by myself, go to a foreign country where people don't speak English or rarely speak English, but really don't speak English. Uh, school is in French because so if you want to do a course taught in English, it automatically gets labeled as an international course. And with the word international, the price just goes all the way up. So yeah, so school was in French. I don't think when I was applying, I realized this because I think as a high anxiety person, it would have stopped me because I'd be like, uh, is my French that good? I don't think I'll be able to manage a whole biochemistry master's course in French. I, I don't think I thought about it. So I go to France. I land. I have a level level five uh, qualification. So the qualifications go from one to, to six. So six, level six is a a native French speaker. I have level five, but this is level five on paper. We've all done um, foreign classes, like languages, foreign language classes. You know, you can write that essay and understand everything. But when it comes to you having to speak that language, it's like it gets stuck in your throat. So I, I get to France with my level five papers. I'm like, I'm just one grade below a native French speaker. And I get... Um, I get off the airport, take a train, go to Bordeaux. Uh, can't find the buses, so I'm like, let me take a taxi. I get into the taxi. I cannot even say hi. <laughs> I'd like to go to this and this place. The the words. This, I was back to level one. I don't. I literally wrote my address on a piece of paper, gave it to him. I didn't even know how to say here. Take this. I like just read down. Give it to him. He must have thought I just don't know how to talk. <laughs> And so he took me there and I was just like in shame. I was like, oh my God. So I just got here. I can't even tell the taxi guy where to drop me. How am I going to do this? I think that was the moment I was like, oh gosh, what am I doing? I am alone in a foreign country, the foreign language, and I have to study and pass after failing <laughs> undergrad. <laughs> yeah, I had not thought about it. It was it was challenging. Um, I think it took me a month to just settle down. A month to be like, okay, so when the teacher talks in French, I should not translate everything before I write it down. Because if I translate everything, I'm losing time. He's already on the next point. I'm still trying to be like, what's this word? It took me time to uh, be comfortable with uh, numbers. So my weakness in French is, is numbers. Once the numbers go from 70 <laughs> to a hundred, cause it's 70, it's like it, 70 is 60 times 10. And then there's 80 and then 90 is, sorry, 70 is 60 plus 10, 80. And then 90 is 80 plus times, no, 20 times four. So by the time I know it's 80 and then I'm trying to translate it to 20 times four. It's just numbers in French are confusing. So you cannot imagine the, the, the math classes where numbers are just flying off everywhere. And I'm trying to follow the sum because I'm not good at maths. 
And then I'm trying to be like, okay, he said this. What what number is that? Is that is that 78 or 68? Uh, I don't know. He was it was such a mess. So yeah, it took me a month at least to be to be able to write notes in in, in French we say franglais. It's like French English. <laughs> My notes were whichever language the word comes in is what I'm writing. We'll figure out what that sentence means later. It was it was an adjustment. I think I had I I would not have gone to France. I would not have come to France if I knew if I if I had understood how tough it will be, especially in the beginning. Let me just digress a bit, but it's so interesting mm-hmm. interviewing my friends because I've been with this through this experience with you. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But hearing you tell it to an audience is really interesting because I'm not explaining <laughs> so many things and abstract about it. And I remember you telling mm-hmm. us how like it took you a while to even make friends. And yeah. you know, just like activities, and we've talked about this in a previous podcast with someone else. But the whole relocating to a new country and mm-hmm. getting used to their weather, and getting used to their food, and getting used to their mm-hmm. culture, and then for you, it's in a whole different language. It's like like you just feel like it's like a constant <laughs> just barrage of fish out of water. You're like okay. So when when will things settle? But mm-hmm. now, knowing how well you speak French and knowing how well you settled, <laughs> it's been so interesting mm-hmm. watching you grow into this person mm-hmm. who's so confident with where they are in life. So you finished your undergrad. You've gotten through the failure and the um, devastation. You've picked yourself up, studied mm-hmm. French, gone and done your masters in French <laughs> in biochemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, Then what next? What do you do after that? So, like undergrad, you you do the next thing, you do the next degree. So I decided to apply for PhDs. So I started applying around six months to to when I was supposed to graduate. If I would graduate this time, <laughs> I graduated. Spoilers. Um, <laughs> so this is January. I'm supposed to finish in July, and I want to join the September program. So January, I start applying. I, I wanted to apply to stay in France and apply to French programs because my current my then boyfriend who's my current husband um was French is French so I I wanted to apply in France but the thing was to do a PhD in France you just don't apply and get in you have to go through uh they call them the concours so it's like uh competitions I don't know how to translate it. You basically have to go through a series of um like you, no you need to present sorry you need to present a project that uh needs to needs to be a real scientific challenge and you need to rank high enough for for you to be able to get the number of for you to get the few number of of uh, of scholarships that are available so i haven't graduated yet my last graduation was a failed graduation and then i have to do this concours and try and be the best <laughs> confidence was not running high and i was like ah oh, let me not put myself through that 
let me apply elsewhere in Europe. At least I'll still be within the continent and we can do a long distance relationship because it was already long distance. I was in Bordeaux and he he lived in a, another town um, like two hours away. So I decided to apply to other European countries. So I think I did um, Nordic countries. I don't know why. I did one in the in the UK. I always apply to the UK. <laughs> and then I think the others were Nordic countries. And I got into a really interesting program in, in Iceland. That's where I decided to go. So in April, the, the PI contacted me saying she had picked me and she wanted me to come to Iceland and visit the lab and see the country and decide if that's what I want to do. So I, I went and I liked it. I was like, this is, this is different. I mean, Iceland, what? You know, it's those countries you don't even think about as a place where you could go. So yeah, that's how I decided to do my PhD in Iceland. You've gone to Iceland and the podcast, by the time you're listening to this, the podcast before we'll have talked about the struggles with PhDs and mm-hmm. how um, the mental health toll it takes. And I think you are probably the, the closest friend to me who actually explained mm-hmm. to me the challenges you faced. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things she brought up was how the weather when you're studying in a country abroad can be so difficult to bear. And then the mm. workload and the, the yeah. uncertainty and then how all that become this, this amalgamation of issues. How did that mm-hmm. go for you? So let me write you, let me list the things that can come together <laughs> and change your life. So studying in Iceland, first of all, excitement is there the 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 topic was really interesting so i think by now i can probably talk about what what i was doing there so i was studying i was supposed to be studying um the difference the factors that lead to the differentiation of of cells in mouse embryonic stem cells very very cool topic uh kind of the same topic of differentiation in cells as I was doing in my master's, except I'd be using completely different techniques. I'd be using mammalian cells instead of warm cells. And so I was like, it has to work. I love the, the topic. Iceland is, is Iceland. It's so beautiful. So I go. But the things I didn't think about was, first of all, the weather. So I'd really adapted well, I'd say, to, to French weather. I mean, the winters were cold, but you put out like proper um, winter clothes and you're fine. But Icelandic weather was, in the beginning it was beautiful because I, I got there in in December. So I had some visa issues and uh, the application took longer than expected. So I didn't join in September, I actually joined in, in December. Um, so the weather in December was beautiful. It would snow. The next day, clear blue skies, Snow covered everything. Just the white on blue was beautiful. But um, summer, summer never came. <laughs> when you just had all the winter of your life and you're like, summer is going to come. Summer was gray, rainy, 15 degrees. You can't even wear a T-shirt. I mean, the Icelandic people wore T-shirts, but I come from Kenya, so 15 degrees is still cold weather. So there was the weather factor. 
there was the workload. So because I was working with embryonic stem cells, I had to take care of them daily. So today, say, I'd change their, their media, and then tomorrow I'd have to uh, passage them. So passaging cells is when they've grown too many in your, in your well or in your dish, and you need to uh, separate them so that they are like less overpopulate, over, overpopulated. So one day I change their media so they get like fresh nutrients and the next day I have to passage them every day. That means I have to be in the lab every single day, Monday to Monday to Monday to Monday. So when I applied for this program, I knew this was what was going to happen. But uh, what I got from my PI was that she'd help me. And then obviously she was going to get a postdoc to work on the same project. So we'd be Three, at least three people to like share this workload. Of course, I do the research and the experiments, but I'd get help so that I wouldn't have to be in the lab every day. But that was not the case when I got there. So I have to be in the lab every single day. Um, that means on top of my experiments and reading papers and going for classes and um, trying to have a social life. Of course, I was alone, but I kind of decided to make friends. And Iceland is beautiful. You need to get out of this capital and go to other places. But you can't because you have your cell babies in the lab who need you every single day. And then the darkness. So when, once the winter came in, the days would be really short. I'd leave the house. It would be dark. I'd see the sunrise through the window of my lab, my natural light uh, illuminated lab and see the sun outside rising at like 10-ish and then the sun would go down but I'm still in the lab because I haven't finished so I'd go back home and it's dark and rinse repeat so these were many factors that of course compounded with another fact that I I didn't find my supervisor supportive enough so she was a workaholic she clearly said it and she'd expect everyone to work like her. And I think this is obviously, I thought about this much later, but I think I went into the PhD for the wrong reasons. I went into the PhD because it was the next step. I think I had it said that for you to succeed in the PhD, you have to go because you love what you're doing and because you believe in what you're doing. So I loved what I was doing, but I not believe that I had to do this research and that it would, I don't know, bring about this change in the world. I just went because it was a cool project. It was in Iceland. It was the next step. So all these factors kind of played together into destroying my mental health. So what I didn't say was that um, in high school, this is now hindsight, hindsight, hindsight. In high school, I used to have this thing where during exams I'd panic, but I wouldn't panic too much. I'd panic just a bit. It was like the beginnings of a panic that I finally understood was the beginnings of a panic attack when I was in master's just before my first ever cut, not even exam, <laughs> my first ever enzymology cut. And I had a panic attack by myself in my room. And I I did not know what was happening. And Oh, sorry. Hold on. That was not my first panic attack. No, my first panic attack was just after I had, just 
that year, the 2014 year when my life was in shambles and I was trying to see what to do next. That was when I had a first, my first panic attack. And because of that sensation, sensation, it was later that I realized that I used to have like mini, not complete panic attacks in high school, like during tests and whatever, because I'm just an anxious person. And then I had my first panic attack abroad. I thought I was fine. I had my first panic attack abroad over exams. So previously, my panic attacks seemed to just come out of nowhere. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I guess it's just a, a random thing that will pass. But when I had it in, in France for the first time, I had it with the first dark thoughts. And it went so bad, I actually envisioned what I needed to do to get out of this test, which was go up to the top floor of my hostel building and jump which was so insane. This was within the first three months. I'm in a new country. I have a test on Monday. It's the weekend. I'm like, I don't think I can do this test. I'm too scared. I need to escape. But the thing that stopped me was the logistics of it. So I was like, okay, so you go upstairs and you jump. Who's going to come and get your phone and text your parents. This is what is happening. And then how will your parents organize getting your body back to Kenya? And just, you know, and I was like, that's too much, <laughs> too much to do. Let me not do it. I'll just do this exam. And then I think I had two more panic attacks like that before, before finally deciding to, to talk to the school uh, psychologist. So, I think by the time I was going to Iceland, I thought I had talked it out enough, except so all these factors that I've listed to you, uh, Iceland just exacerbated the whole thing. So uh, in Iceland, my panic attacks became full-blown. I don't know. I don't know what is, is more extreme than a panic attack. So they just kept on coming until... I was actually diagnosed with uh, with uh, depression. Uh, I, at some point, I would just get back home. Hardly have I gotten back home. I'm looking at all the things I need to do just to study and keep up with my courses. And then all the experiments I have running in parallel and what I need to do tomorrow. And then all the cell lines I have growing in the incubator, which one needs to be passage, which one needs the media to be changed. This was every day. There was no, there was no rest. I think I went on a trip like one weekend and I had to pass by the lab, check on my cells and an experiment, go to the trip, thinking about my, my cells and the experiment. When I came back, go to the lab, check on the experiment and the cells and then go back home. So the panic attacks just got more and more and more until I think I had to break at some point. Uh, by the time I was quitting, this was eight months into the, the program, I couldn't hold a pipette to just take a reagent from like the pipette and put it into another, sorry, take the reagent from a tube, like with a pipette and like put it into another container and just start shaking and crying. And it was, it was intense. I, I had to be put on medication. I had to, I spoke to a psychologist, a psychiatrist, 
that medication, man, it's numbed the entire <laughs> existence out of me. I take those pills and life would just be, what is the word? Bland, no emotions. And and the funny thing is that when I, because I, I talked to my supervisor, my PI about it, and she was like, oh, don't worry. Uh, two or three of my colleagues are on antidepressants like you, and they're fine. They, they're successful. And I was like, what? Am I supposed to spend the next uh, three to four years of this PhD as a vegetable just working on, what is it called? Like working on the bare minimum, just what I need to do, this is what I need to do with no emotions. I, I don't know. I don't know how people do it. But yeah, so that was that was how the PhD went. I I went in full of energy, excitement, and I couldn't I couldn't manage. I I don't know if it's because I was in it for the wrong reasons. Of course, that plays a, a huge role in it. Maybe if I was in it for for the science and for the conviction that what I'm doing is important work, I need to do it. Maybe I'd have stuck with it. Um, there was also a big uh, role played by imposter syndrome. So Daisy from Kenya gets accepted into the University of Iceland to do this really interesting research. I was just like, me? And so every day I'd just be like, oh my gosh, they, they actually picked me and I have to you know, do this every day and I have to think about what experiments would be interesting to do so that we can see that this protein does whatever in these cells. I was just like, me? <laughs> I was hella insecure. That also played a big part of it. I think at some point I was like, this is now later. I would, I would be like, if it wasn't for the panic attack, I don't know actually if I would if the imposter syndrome would have got me, if it wasn't for the anxiety and the depression and the panic attacks, would I have continued and told myself like you're worth it? They picked you because of your credentials and, and actually made it. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I knew you were going through a hard time at the mm -hmm. time. I guess I just didn't realize how difficult it was because we've talked about this over the past couple of years you mm -hmm. know bits and pieces but mm -hmm. we've never talked in in extreme detail also because i think mm -hmm. for a long time you it was too painful to talk about it yeah it took a while for me to be able yeah. to just talk about it without like trying to make an excuse of this and that and just talk about like this is what happened this can happen. Yeah. yeah. It it makes me really sad to think that <laughs> like you are going through this mm -hmm. and in as much as we wanted to help sometimes with, with mental health. Um, and I've, I've also shared my issue with like anxiety. Sometimes it's mm -hmm. even just admitting that you're going through something takes so yeah. much 
like for you to I, actually sit down and tell someone like i get panic attack mm-hmm. it takes a lot so i can imagine having to tell your friends and family that from mm-hmm. the uh, thousand kilometers yeah. away <laughs> i agree oh, I, I think talking about it is really hard it, i think it took it took my boyfriend coming to visit in june so to give you context i got into iceland in December, early December, and I left on the 1st of August. So June, July, August, this is three months before I, uh, no, June, July. Yeah, this is two months before I leave. So it actually took my boyfriend coming for, I think he came for two weeks and he explored Iceland. He knows Iceland more than I do. He came for two weeks. He saw almost everything. I'd been there for eight months. I saw Two places. <laughs> it took him coming there, seeing my day-to-day life, um, taking part in one too many panic attacks to be like, okay, Daisy, this is this is insane. You can't you can't live like this. You have three to four years, whoever knows how long it'll take you to finish this ahead of you. You cannot go through it like this. And so that was when I decided to seek help. So in June, I decided, okay, this is Maybe it's serious. Let me let me see, let me see um, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Because I, it was, I think it was towards the end of June that I had my first panic attack in the lab with people around, and so I had to go home. And then I got contacts uh, to see the doctors, and they gave me this medication, and I was put on sick leave. And on the sick leave, I decided to go to come back to France and be with. Um, my boyfriend and his family. And so I was on the drugs and I came here and my boyfriend looked at me, he was like, this is, this is not you. Like I get you fine now, but these drugs are just like dampening and flattening your personality. You're just, you're not there. I look into your eyes and you're not even there. It took these comments from him, from his family, for me to realize even with the help that I'm getting, if I'm to heal, I should not be in this same environment. Uh, Edel also came to Iceland just after my boyfriend left. Edel is also our one of our um, mutual friends. She came to Iceland and also talking with her. <laughs> I think sometimes you just need people to see what you're going through and sort of lead you to the decision that you know you should make, but you can't make. So the t- decision I had to make was, to quit, but we're not quitters. Have you ever quit something so big? <laughs> and you're just like, what? Am I about to quit this PhD that I got a scholarship for and it's paid for for the next four years and I'm all the way in Iceland? Am I supposed to just be like, I'm quitting? I haven't even done one year. It took all these comments for me to be like, okay, these guys are right. If I need to get better, I can't be here anymore. So what I did was I talked to um, administration and asked them if I could defer. So stop, go get better, and then come back. Um, somehow that was not possible because I think the grant money was on a deadline. So if I can't do it, they can't pause it and be like, the student is sick, we'll pick up back later. They were like, if you need to stop, you stop and that's it. We need to get someone 
another student to continue with the research. So that's how I had to quit. And even before quitting, <laughs> it was so hard. So I remember it was this morning, um, Idel was around and I was like, Idel, I'm going to go quit today. And she's like, I think it's it's a good thing. You should, you've decided you should go quit. So I get up, get dressed and I go to the lab. I lived a uh, 15 minutes walk from the lab. I could see <laughs> my my PI's light when she was in the lab. I could see her like her light <laughs> from my house. The amount of anxiety that gave me. At eight o'clock, I see her light. I'm like, oh gosh, she's already in the lab. I'm still in the house in my pajamas. I need to go to the lab. She cannot see that I'm not working. Anyway, so I d- get dressed. I go to the lab. I go to her office, and I'm like, I I, I want to quit, so I'm gonna quit. So I go, and hardly have I even opened my mouth. Panic attack. <laughs> I could not even quit the day I decided to quit. So she actually drove me home <laughs> and I just went back into bed. <laughs> uh, I don't actually remember when exactly. I quit. It was within, was it within that week or is it a few weeks later? I think it took me a couple of more weeks to actually get the courage to go and do what I knew I had to do from like, I don't know mid-march or something yeah (laughs) yeah so that's how that's how i quit my my phd after after eight months part of the reason that i wanted to have different women is so that we can share the real struggles Mm -hmm. that like we go through and one of the biggest things that you and i (laughs) talk about is like our fear of failure Mm -hmm. like our imposter syndrome and so I oh, can't man. imagine how difficult it is as somebody who's like, you know, like a perfectionist and a high achiever and mm-hmm. now having to quit a PhD and already having the background of all these other issues and just how difficult that must have. It was difficult just me saying I'm putting a stop to this trajectory that I've taken and then also difficult because society, I mean, Everyone was like, whoa, Daisy's going to Iceland. She's going to do a PhD. She's so young, blah, blah, blah. And then eight months later, I have to come back home and be like, you guys, I I quit. And in the beginning, I wouldn't even tell people uh, the, the real story behind it. I'd just be like, I decided not to go through with it. That's what I would say. I wouldn't say I had a mental health issue. I would not. I'd just give the shortest answer and try and try and divert the, <laughs> the question. I, I remember you, it was just like you came home just a few days to my wedding and you didn't come. Mm-hmm. You actually didn't make it to my wedding. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't even have been uh, able to. Oh, yeah. And I was in I such remember, a bad place. Um, you were meant to be one of my bridesmaids and then mm-hmm. you went quiet for a long time. And then you just mm-hmm. said, I can't do it. And then, like, almost immediately, you said, okay, I'm quitting my PhD. I remember just thinking, okay, this transcends everything. Like, a wedding, fine, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not a problem. But, like, we'll talk about it later. And only in the last maybe one or two years have we been able to, like, talk about it properly and, like, actually get to the bottom Mm -hmm. of it. Because for for a long time, you, you really would not address it. So I'm really, really proud of you. 
yeah. for like the steps you've taken and Thank just the you. progress you've taken. And because I know how your life is now and knowing how you're prospering. <laughs> so in fact, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's move on from mm-hmm. the PhD because I know how your life is. So in between the PhD and now, mm-hmm. now you're back in France and yes. you just finished studying something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now you're working. So tell us mm-hmm. what's that about? Yeah. So, uh, 2018, so 2018, August, I come back home. I've just quit the PhD and then I'm like, okay. So I'm back again to 2014 Daisy who, whose plan did not work. So what am I supposed to do? So I decided to start applying for jobs. Uh, my goal was to try and come back to France because my boyfriend, uh, so I started applying for jobs in France, but the first thing they see is that I, I'm from Kenya. I don't. So yes, I have French, a French degree, but I live in Kenya. So my address, the address, the phone number, whatever, everything I give is based in Kenya. So I think that puts employers off. And even as I'm applying to these jobs, cause I'm, so I'm applying to research jobs. I've just, left research. I could barely pipette the last day <laughs> I decided to do lab work. So as I'm applying to just these jobs, I'm just like, am I even going to be able, am I just going to get into this job, start doing work and then have a thousand panic attacks? You know, I'm applying to these jobs sort of half hoping that they don't pick me because I really don't want to do it. But the, this is the only skill set I have. This is the only marketable thing I can do at this stage. So I keep on applying, keep on applying. Obviously, I was not, I was not picked. Um, then I find myself applying to jobs that I know I am way overqualified to do, just to get a yes so that I can be able to make it back to France. So I find myself applying for um, lab assistant jobs, technician jobs. At some point, I was applying to be an English teacher <laughs> in France, in France. And the salary was terrible. Uh, what I'd heard from many people was that those jobs are terrible, poor conditions. But I was like, anything, man, anything to go back to France, anything to not be in a lab, I'm going to do it. Um, so I did that 2018 20, and half of 2019, and it wasn't working. Um, then I f- fell upon this uh, program, uh, this was, uh, so it's a work-study program uh, done alternate, alternatingly. So that means you are in school for one month, full-time, and then you're attached to a company, so you work there for two months, and then back to school one month, then back to work two months. And I was like, this is really interesting because I get my qualifications within a year, and of uh, sorry, within two years. And within those two years, every two months I'm at work. So basically I can say I have one year experience out of this two-year program. So I thought that was really interesting and I applied for it. Uh, meantime, I'm trying to get married <laughs> because uh, we finally decided that so I, wasn't, I wasn't in school. I didn't have much going on for me in Kenya because I think I also applied to some jobs in Kenya, but in the meantime, uh, as I wait to go back to France after I get married, but also, those also didn't work out. So I'm trying to get married and I apply for this job. So I got married in 
mid-2019. Uh, and then I finally got my visa at the end of the year. So I was able to come to France in October. So I come to France specific, uh, or exactly October 19th, 2019. And this course that I applied for, that I had applied for, has started on October 14th. So I was like, the course has started. I'm, I'm too late. I got here too late. I can't apply. So the first week I'm in France, I go apply for unemployment. And then right across the road, road from the unemployment office was the school that I had applied to. And then my husband was like, uh, why don't you just go talk to them, see if there are any free slots or just apply for next year's entrance. So I apply. So I go, I talk to them. And luckily, the they had just lost an intern. So one of the students who had applied to the program uh, just got fired from uh, from their work program, like the, the, the company he was going to do, be doing the work-study program at. So they were looking for someone. So we worked on my CV and they sent it and the company accepted me. So within a week, I have just gone into France uh newlyweds and then now I have to leave and go to a town four hours away for this work study program. So this program was for me uh a way to get my career back on track. So having done academia since my undergrad, I was trying to kind of veer and go into industry because academia had scarred me. <laughs> I really wasn't sure I was able to do lab work anymore. So I decided to do this course. So this was a course in bioproduction, uh, industrial bioproduction. So I decided to do this course as a way to get my foot into industry and see if there's a way I can transfer my lab biochemistry skills into the industry. Luckily enough, the company that I got was not a pharmaceutical company or a lab. It was it's an engineering company, an engineering firm. So uh, I was very happy not to be in the lab doing something I had never thought biochemistry would lead me into. Uh, so this is uh, engineering for pharmaceutical companies, for um, biotech companies, for cosmetic companies, for guys who make perfumes. Uh, very, very interesting, very challenging as well. So I did this program. Uh, I just finished it in July of this year and the company decided to keep me on. So I, I'm just newly employed <laughs> in the same company. Well, I've been in the company for two years, but now I have a, a, a permanent contract. Yeah, and that's, that's how I got into engineering. What would you tell 18-year-old you? coming straight from high school and ready mm -hmm. to face the world. Just <laughs> it's a barren land for you to go <laughs> mm -hmm. just explore. I tell myself, look at all the options that are out there. Don't just go for the next step. Of course, now I don't regret the biochemistry path I took, even PhD, because I think if I hadn't, gone through what I had gone through, I wouldn't be here. So if I hadn't done a PhD, I think it would still be at the back of my mind that I'd like to achieve this thing. I, I think that's just the type of person I am. I just 
I need to do the next, if I take a path, I need to just go, go on it. If there's a crossroads, I need to go over that and go to the next, whatever is leading next. So the fact that I got into PhD and saw how it was enables me to be able to be like, okay, in leaving this, I'm okay with this. Let me look for whatever else is out there. So I would tell myself, look at all the options that are out there. And this is the thing. So when I came to do my master's, I didn't, I did not know that I could do work study programs. And these are really interesting. I don't know if they exist in Kenya because I really enjoyed this program. So it's basically a crash course into, into the job market. You're half in school and half at work. So you're getting theoretical skills at school and you're literally applying them at work. And if you haven't gotten to uh, like this, this subject in school, you've already lived it at work and you had a project that had you learn this skill on the ground. Like this is the client who wants to do this. Uh, I don't know how to do this. Well, we need to do this. Let's do this together. And that's how you learn. You practically learn, like they put you in the water and you have to swim. <laughs> I think what I'd like for people to, young people who, are, who need some guidance, I'd say, look at all the options. Don't just stick to bachelor's, master's, PhD, postdoc, whatever. Look at all the things that are available to you and just try and, and, and test them out. I'd also say it's, it's not failure. It's just an opportunity. <laughs> I think people say this a lot, <laughs> but it's true. So failing um, that course in undergrad brought about the opportunity for me to do French, to be able to come to France and do my master's and of course meet my husband. And then doing this PhD enabled me to learn. So I learned so much in those eight months, so many skills, so much of how uh, academia works from undergrad level to PhD level. And quitting gave me the opportunity to look at whatever other options were there and decide to do something I had never thought I'd do, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. So I'd say it's not failure. It's just an opportunity. You need to step back, think about all your options, reevaluate if you need to and see, okay, this happened. What can I do? What can I make out of this? Yeah, that's what I'd say. What does the future look like for you? We've seen you mm-hmm. from failing your undergrad when you didn't think you, when, you know, just basically being blindsided mm-hmm. to moving to France to study a biochemistry degree in French, which still mm-hmm. blows my mind, <laughs> to doing a PhD and quitting it and now working. So assuming you could control your future because we all know we can't and tomorrow you might mm-hmm. be telling me you're going into aerospace engineering. <laughs> what? <laughs> What does the future look like for you? The future for me, so let me start with the next five years. I think I want to stay in this field and learn as much as I can. So while I've been here for almost two years now, um, I'm still young. I'm still learning a lot. I have only just seen like the tip of the iceberg. So I think I want to stay in um, pharmaceutical engineering for a while 
And then hopefully this experience to the projects that I'll work with will open my eyes to something else that I'd never thought about, which knowing myself, <laughs> I might be like, let me see what this, this leads to. Because I, I feel like you can always change what you're doing. You can always find a fork in the road and be like, if I go this way, it won't be such a detour from my general path. Let me turn left and see what's there. Yeah. I think stay here for a while and then see what comes next. You never know. Maybe I could end up being a teacher like I always wanted. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Final words for our audience. Try and find something, something you enjoy. And if you think... If you if you have a doubt about whether you enjoy something, then you're probably not enjoying it. And life will just give you small signs to be like, it's time. It's time. And if you get those signs, don't hesitate. Don't prolong the pain. <laughs> just just accept that some some something can happen that will make you have to change from your initial plan. It's going to be hard. You're going to feel like your life is over. You're going to be devastated. But you'll come out from the other side. So the other thing that Daisy does is, in her biochemist ways, she actually <laughs> is a small business owner. So tell us about your business. Let me say small business co-owner, because as of a few months, um, I'm actually co-director of a small Kenyan business, Ajani Handmade. So I got into contact with the owner of, of Ajani in 2019 when I was looking for a job and I was able to work with her as a formulator. So I got to use my scientific knowledge. And yeah, so we are based in Kenya. Hopefully soon we'll be able to have our products in East Africa. So yes, we have a, a business that supplies, that provides Africans with handmade beauty products, so hair and body products, as well as uh, luxury items like candles and room sprays. We have hair and body butters. We have body scrubs. So if you ever come across our products, spoil yourself. Tebuji <laughs> spoil. Just spoil, Nani. And I don't say this from a biased point, but mm -hmm. genuinely the body butters are top notch. So I will leave a link in the show notes to where you can buy them. And no, you will not regret it because yes, you also please. know who has produced it. Top notch <laughs> by Kenny's. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm also uh, an amateur poet. I have been writing poems since high school. I've abandoned it a bit um, for a couple of years. I actually need to come back. But yeah, I have a um, a blog where I post my some of my poems that I'm quite proud of. So if you guys are looking for something short but sweet to read, you can go to stilldaisy.wordpress.com and, and, and read some of my work. And it's really good also. Not saying it from a biased point. <laughs> Not at because all. Because she's very talented. <laughs> I would thank still you. leave a link to that in the description. Yes. I just want to thank you so much for coming on and for being so honest and vulnerable and so raw. Thank you for having me. I feel like it's it's very needed. I think these are conversations that we need to have so that 
someone out there who's going through the same thing can 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 listen and be like this is this is not just happening to me and I can get over it so that's the conversation that Daisy and I had like I said it was really interesting and at certain bits emotional and also just eye-opening after we finished recording this episode with Daisy uh, we had a conversation afterwards and I was telling her how I was so glad that she was able to be so vulnerable and she said that she wishes she had had a platform where someone else had talked about the challenges that would be that she would potentially face because just knowing what's out there would have helped and that really affirmed what I was doing and what I hope to achieve so I really hope that this was eye opening for you as much as it was for me and that you enjoyed it before I go I would like to invite you to join our social media so or like our social media pages so we're on Instagram as at stemming from Africa and Twitter at stem from Africa have a fantastic Friday and a great weekend and we will see you next week that will be all for this episode of stemming from Africa i hope you have a great weekend and i hope to see and hear from you next friday